Time for a little pop quiz. What does this number one radio hit from 1967 have to do with Canadian cultural history? Or if you don't recognize this tune, and are from the wrong demographic to recall Canadian centennial fever, you can take this one. What is the connection between the Montreal biosphere and a museum curator mistake that made front page news across the country? I'll solve that little mystery and find out what it takes to be in the driver's seat of a symphony orchestra from someone who knows. Modern art scandal, the problem with Beethoven's birthday, and the musical journey of Carl Hertzer, all on this episode of Culture Monster. I'm Jonathan Gressel, and this is Culture Monster, the podcast where I devour the arts. What is Culture Monster about? Well, consider this. What's the connection between George Frederick Handel and laser eye surgery? What does it feel like right before you give the downbeat of a Beethoven symphony? Why are there two skulls in Haydn's tomb? I'll take you along as I find out. We'll have some interesting conversations with people about their life in the arts and how they do what they do. And I'll be telling some of my favorite and unusual stories about giants from the past. In a moment, Carl Hertzer will join me to talk about what it is like to wave a stick for a living. But first, the culture monster bite of the day. This is where I recommend something I have been devouring recently. Today's bite is from Wired Magazine's YouTube channel. It's called Conductor Breaks Down Orchestra Scenes from Movies and TV. It is part of a series called Technique Critique, which has experts comparing their trade to how it is portrayed by Hollywood. Marin Alsop is the conductor here. I'm Marin Alsop. Marin Alsop has spent a decade as music director for the Baltimore Symphony and is currently principal conductor of the Vienna Radio Symphony and has a regular presence with orchestras all over the world. She looks at movies ranging from Amadeus, Mr. Holland's Opus, and even School of Rock. Of Mr. Holland, she has some concerns. The character of Mr. Holland, he's basically just beating time. It's a very robotic approach to conducting, with both arms doing the exact same thing. Conducting is all about separating your hands so that you can create two different worlds. It isn't all negativity, however. First of all, I have to say, I love her enthusiasm. What I absolutely love about this scene and about this whole movie is... The video is a bit over 15 minutes. You'll learn something and even perhaps find a new movie to put in your queue. There'll be a link in the show notes for you to check it out for yourself. There are a lot of paintings in the world, and not all of them have their own Wikipedia page. But one that does is Voice of Fire by the American artist Barnett Newman. It was commissioned for the artistic component of Expo 67. Expo 67, or for those being official, 
1967 International and Universal Exposition was a World's Fair held the year of the 100th anniversary of Canadian Confederation. It was often called the most successful World's Fair in the 20th century. With 62 nations participating and with many other attractions, the countries wanted to make sure their contribution would impress the fair's visitors. As the home team, Canada's pavilion was suitably grand. It resembled an upside-down pyramid and was called Katimavik, which was Inuit for gathering place. Our story, however, concerns the U.S. pavilion, which was a giant geodesic dome designed by Buckminster Fuller, one of his most impressive creations. It still exists today as home of the biosphere. While it had crowd-pleasing artifacts, like an Apollo space capsule and one of Elvis's guitars, it also had a modern art exhibit. Taking advantage of the large space, Newman's painting, Voice of Fire, is a vertically oriented work over five meters tall. It resembles a red stripe in a field of deep blue. After the expo was over, there was another burst of Canadian nationalism supported by the government over the patriation of the Constitution in 1982. This resulted in a brand new purpose-built building for the National Gallery of Canada. The gallery's director asked Newman's widow if she would consider loaning the painting to the gallery for its opening. It occupies a prominent space in a high-ceilinged room, where you can still see it today. There wasn't much notice of it at the time, but over a year later, the gallery announced it had purchased the painting for $1.8 million. Cue the outrage. This purchase caused a great controversy. There was a publicity campaign against the work as a waste of taxpayer money. People sold t-shirts with parody versions of it. There were debates in Parliament, multiple columns, editorial cartoons. Unlike some other art scandals, this wasn't about a work of art causing offense, but whether it counted as art at all. The gallery's contemporary art curator at the time, Diana Nemiroff, defended the painting on the new 24-hour channel CBC Newsworld. She later noted, I wore a blue blazer with a red t-shirt underneath. It took a while before someone noticed. Eventually, the Fuhrer died down, only to reappear in 1992 when it was discovered the gallery had hung the painting upside down. Even experts make mistakes sometimes. A postscript on that story. When asked a few years ago about the painting, the gallery responded that, as property of the nation, Voice of Fire is unlikely to ever be sold. They did allow that their current estimate of its value at auction to be in excess of $40 million. And now to our main event, my first guest on Culture Monster. While the word conductor might spark mental pictures of the romance of travel by train, for many it conjures the idea of the most mysterious of musical jobs. A wizard who literally waves a magic wand to make music come out. The reality is a conductor is silent and relies upon the artistry of the players to create a musical performance. To help me out with what it really takes to lead a symphony orchestra, I spoke with Carl Hertzer of the Calgary Philharmonic. Our conversation includes detailed remarks as to his thinking about what the conductor does in solo preparation, in rehearsal with the players, and in performance. Carl mentions which one of those stages has the most nervousness attached. We also talk about his background and his interest in a variety of musical genres. Stay to the end to hear his passionate thoughts on why composers like Beethoven continue to speak to us today. It's an interesting conversation with a very thoughtful member of Calgary's musical community. Hello, Carl. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Jonathan. My pleasure. You know, being a conductor fascinates so many people. Let's start by setting the scene. 
the part of the job the audience sees. You're at the concert hall, you walk on stage, greet the concertmaster. A Beethoven or Brahms symphony is on the music stand. The concert is about to begin. What does being in that situation feel like? What thoughts are going through your mind? In the moments after you've walked on stage and the music is about to begin, there it, it's actually a little bit calmer than the moments preceding that where you're backstage and, you know, in the between five minutes and 30 minutes before the performance begins, I'm usually quite nervous. Once you're on stage and you have no other choice but to essentially commit to what is about to happen, um, there's a there's a little bit of a little bit of a of, of a relaxed feeling that comes with that. The nice thing about conducting is that you're sharing the stage with so many people, and it's a very communal feeling. Obviously, the dynamic is different between myself and the musicians, between all the musicians on stage, between us and the audience. And I think that makes it a very personal experience for everyone. You know, one of your uh, jobs at the Philharmonic is conducting educational concerts for students. Uh, they come on field trips to the hall. Is it true that kids are a tough crowd? Do you think that it's... Uh, <laughs> can you get their yeah. attention? There are many ways. There are many different ways to answer this question. I'll start with the time when uh, you know you might just find this funny, but I remember we we did a, a concert a couple of years ago. It was Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra and the Three Bs of Music. So in addition to uh, Benjamin Britten's orchestral educate education classic, we did one piece by Bach, one by Beethoven, one by Brahms. And the Brahms piece that uh, for some reason I chose to program was the slow movement from his Third Symphony which is a, a, a very, very famous movement, perhaps the most famous movement out of all the Brahms symphonies. But it is it is a little bit slow, you know, and it's filled with longing and a, you know, a sort of impassioned, melancholic character. The whole point I was trying to get across with the kids here is, you know, here's something that really is going to tug at your heartstrings and make you feel a certain way. And I remember I asked them after we performed it, one of the, one of the days, I said, you know, how how did, how did that make you feel? And they just go sleepy. Having said that, there have been numerous times when we've really felt that the kids have bought in to the education concerts that we've put on, and that's actually a really really special feeling, because an adult audience when they come to see a performance, I think to a certain extent they have expectations about what the performance will be, whereas kids often have no idea. They have no expectation. They have no, uh, you know, they don't want to get anything specific out of the experience. Sometimes that can actually make it really special when you do feel that you have the complete undivided attention. And you can definitely feel that on stage. You can really feel how engaged the audience is. And when you get that with kids, it's really, it's really a special feeling. Let's talk about where you grew up and where you were exposed to music. I mean, was music something that was a big deal in your house as a very young person? I grew up uh, in Vancouver, and neither of my parents were musicians, but you know, music was always around in my family. I think the first music that I remember really loving was the Pogues, the Irish band. My mom's okay, Irish, yeah. and so we were always listening to... You know, not really children's music, but I remember that I really liked the Pogues growing up and um, the Rankin family, which it's hilarious because we actually did a concert with Heather Rankin last year. And my mom's telling me this story of when I was three years old and she was singing one of their songs and apparently I would stop her and say, 
no, mom, this is how it goes. And so maybe a little bit of an inclination already. Uh, she must have loved that story. <laughs> yeah. And I told Heather Rankin that too, and she thought it was hilarious. No, I was into, I was into all uh, that kind of music, basically whatever my parents were listening to, which also meant the, the album Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. I really loved that album. And my parents always said it was hilarious listening to a five-year-old singing all the words to Paradise by the Dashboard Light and having absolutely no idea what the song was about. You know, there was Led Zeppelin and Queen in there and a lot of kind of rock, classic rock music and Louis Armstrong. I remember I loved when I was when I was little as well. There was classical music in there as well. I recently saw a video when I was home that my parents showed me when I was probably, I was just a baby. I was within my first year of life for sure. And I walked into, um, or rather I was just in like a little cradle and then I, whoever was filming walked into the room where I was and there was a recording of Alfred Brendel playing the Appassionata, Beethoven's F minor sonata, Opus 57. It's funny because I don't really remember the first time I heard that piece, but I don't remember a time when that piece wasn't familiar to me. So I, I'm very, I'm, I'm very grateful that my parents exposed me to a huge amount of music, different, you know, different styles all, all across the board, really, when I was, when I was super young. So very grateful for that and that they put me in piano lessons at a young age. Yes. I mean, it sounds like then the connection with the piano goes way back. So you, I, I'm guessing you were taking piano lessons from quite young. I mean, was that something which took up a lot of your energy as a kid or was it just something you did while going to soccer practice or doing many other things? I started piano lessons when I was five years old and I definitely never, I, I never really committed to it as much as I wish I had now, really until I was in college and decided to pursue music fully. When I was in high school and when I was working on my ARCT, I was, you know, I was at that point practicing probably two hours a day or so, but I definitely wished. I mean, it's hard to say, right? Of course, when I'm learning repertoire and practicing and struggling with a particular passage, I'm, of course, will say to myself, oh, I wish I practiced five hours a day when I was 12 years old so that I, you know, would have no problem with this now. And being a conductor, especially, I, I think it's important to be a good musician, but I think it's also important to experience as much of life as you can and to pursue, you know, other perspectives that other art forms have to offer. And I was just thinking, though, I mean, getting a, a RCD diploma um, is, is not a, a ca that casual a thing if you're in yeah, high school. No, you, that you, certainly I, took I, work. I, you're right. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be downplaying it. Like I was. I was very committed to. I was more committed to piano than anything else growing up. Outside of school, that was the one thing that I liked playing music a lot. And even before I started piano lessons, I was always trying to write these these compositions that didn't even make any sense. <laughs> it's actually hilarious now that I think about it. I remember the day that uh, my parents bought a piano. And the first thing I did was write a piece. The piece had no specific notes that were required. It was just, you know, you play a little muddle of notes in this register of the piano, and then you move to another muddle of notes in this in another register of the piano. So uh, you were very experimental. Exactly. Right from day one. Exactly. <laughs> but, but when um, you went off to when when you off to university, you were studying music. You wanted to major in music and and be a pianist. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I was very interested in music in high school, but I was also playing, I was was working towards that ARCT, and I was really, really learning to love music. When I, you know, once I started playing Chopin and Beethoven and Rachmaninoff, I really did start to love 
that music because I just found it to be so, just so expressive and so it was such like a direct line to your experience as a listener. But when I was in high school, you know, I was playing in heavy metal bands and I was playing in jazz bands. I was into a lot of different kinds of music, but it wasn't until I decided to go to college and, and study piano full time. It wasn't even until actually I really got there. It was kind of in my second year at uh, University of Victoria where I, where I uh, did my undergrad that I really started to realize what music was and I really started to understand that it was a language. You could study it and you could speak it and you could communicate with it in a way that people have been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. That was the same all around the world. I just began to realize that it was devoting your life to music is devoting your life to a craft that you can that you can spend your whole life with. And at the same time, it's a way of communicating with people and expressing yourself artistically and sharing with others, you know, this incredible body of work that um, that, that you're passionate about and you want and you want other people to, to hear as well. And I'm just, you know, extremely lucky that I had the opportunities when I was young to be able to, you know, find myself in that position where I could make that, make that choice. I can't really remember a time when I wasn't sort of fascinated by the idea of conducting. And I remember, you know, another story from the early years. Apparently, I once was with my grandmother and she asked me, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And apparently I said a conductor. And this would have been when I was very young, like five, five years old or something. And, you know, she thought, oh, that's so noble, uh, you know, a bus conductor, that a young child wants to have such a public service position. So I, yeah, I don't actually know where the, where the inclination first originated. But when I was in college, and when I really began to start to start listening to orchestral music, that was when I got the bug, I think, and really discovering, really listening to all the Beethoven symphonies more intensely and listening to the Brahms symphonies. And then once I heard Mahler and just thinking, oh my God, this is incredible music. And as a pianist, I can't really be a part of it. I, I felt that I wanted to be a part of you know, being able to perform a Beethoven symphony um, or a Brahms symphony. And really the only way that I would be able to do that would be uh, to become a conductor. So I just had no choice. So is that why you went off to Montreal uh, to to study to become a conductor? I actually uh, went to Montreal to, to continue my piano studies. So I was doing uh, a master's in, in piano at McGill. But I was able to, you know, sort of scrounge around and, and find some opportunities to study conducting there and, and, and have opportunities with ensembles. So that and that was also part of my part of why I wanted to go to McGill because the um, Alexis Hauser, who was my teacher there for two years, he said that I could be part of his class. I met him actually in Vienna of all places because I was living in Berlin that summer before I moved to Montreal. I was writing to him. I was trying to decide where I where I would go to school for the next two years for my master's degree, and you know I thought well if I could have some opportunity to do some conducting as well that would really help sway my decision. And so I got in contact with him and he said, oh, you know, I'm teaching in Vienna right now. Come down here and let's meet. He thought I spoke German at that time. And so he was trying to speak to me in German. And I was, I was just like, oh, no, this is going to be a huge mistake. He's going to think that I'm some floundering fool. But he was, he was super chill and, and we got along well. And, and then he let me be part of, part of this, this class, which was an incredible opportunity. 
people think of, of conducting as a physical job, obviously there is the physical aspect. One thing that people might not think about is how much of conducting or conducting training is actually solitary, is essentially music analysis, spending time with the score. I mean, do you find score reading easy? What do you do when, when you study the score? It's an interesting interesting question and when you know this is a question that i ask a lot of conductors as well i'm always so i'm very fascinated to know how everyone studies because i think it's a very personal thing and it's a little bit different for everyone i like to just read through the score very casually once as if you're looking for a bigger picture like perusing it do one read through of it like that and then i like to go in and scrutinize much more carefully as many small elements as I can. And then, you know, I'll, I'll try and read through it again once or twice like that. Though That's the moment where I think that I develop the ideas that I'll actually bring to the table in terms of what is the, what is the best way to phrase this melody? What is the balance between these instruments that I think would bring out certain things in the score? Our articulation markings are very uh, debatable. How do you interpret what a staccato is? How long, if, if a composer indicates that a note should be short, how short should it be? And then based on what one instrument is playing, how should that marking be interpreted by other instruments who have the same marking? I also work a lot at the piano, and that's where I do the most analysis. I probably actually spend the most time at the piano. And I, you know, I like to do a full harm harmonic analysis of the piece, a full formal analysis I'll practice singing as many different parts as I can or playing one or two parts on the piano while singing a different part. For me as a pianist, that's just the way that I feel that I'm really diving into the music and really getting to know it as thoroughly as I can. And when you have taken that work and are then you know, in the rehearsal with the orchestra and you've made some of these decisions, how many of these decisions do you feel end up in the final performance because there is a sort of mysterious collaboration as the players who all are experts on their own instruments and have all played these pieces many times themselves are also interpreting what you're doing and interpreting the music um i wonder how <laughs> how you experience that or what what are your thoughts about that aspect what you said uh, in terms of being a collaboration is absolutely true the conductor should not be there to say, okay, this is the plan and this is how we're going to do it. Uh, sometimes that is what needs to happen, but really what the relationship is, is that we're here to make music together. And in any situation where I'm conducting an orchestra, especially with the Calgary Phil, the musicians are extremely, extremely good. They're all phenomenal musicians. They play their instruments at such a high level. They're going to bring their own ideas of how the music should be played to the table. When I'm preparing at home, I think that it's helpful for me to really prioritize what sort of information I would like to convey. Big picture stuff is really important for a conductor. This is this is more so the character of this section. That's where a conductor can say, okay, for this passage, you know, let's play with a more straight sound or let's play with more motion or a more direct tone in the strings and not such a wide vibrato very broad uh feeling to the music just kind of a like overall characteristics like that i think it's really important when i'm studying i try to be very clear in my mind about what 
not necessarily about how it how it has to go but what the possibilities are because then if you're conducting in a rehearsal you know many times the orchestra will play the music in a way that you hadn't considered before and you'll you'll just say okay that sounds awesome let's but you know i'm not going to mess with that at all the bigger picture things are very important to just really really consider and be clear about in in advance and then beyond that really thinking about what the different possibilities are for phrasing and especially with string instruments when you have many many musicians playing one part together it's not as easy if there's an oboe solo or a clarinet solo and the individuals playing those melodies are really already going to be playing them in such a way that it's it's musical because they're choosing how to do it if you have 12 first violinists playing the same melody really can be helpful if the conductor is very clear in terms of where is the apex of the phrase how are we going to taper off the ending here when can the music swell when can the music become more anxious or more what what whatever uh whatever flowery adjective you'd like to use. It's a very, very long answer, but it's uh, sort of a, <laughs> a detailed question. So Yes, yes. No, no, it's fascinating. Moving from there to the performance, I mean, when someone looks at the score of, you know, Beethoven Symphony or Brahms Symphony, you see the line of music for the violins, the line of music for the violas, cellos, there's lines of music for everyone. That can easily add up to, uh, depending on how you count, 15, 20, 24 different lines of music which are there simultaneously. And mm -hmm. when the whole orchestra is playing hundreds of hundreds of bars of music in those pieces, that's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of notes. In a performance, are you reading all of those? Or have you just memorized the most important bits? I'm not like, I'm not reading thoroughly each line. I try to scan the whole score most of the time so that I look over, let's say, a a length of five, six, seven, eight measures and just scan through the whole score really quickly. And I'll know from having studied it and from having, or if it's a performance, from having rehearsed it, there will sort of be a hierarchy of what musical information I'm either choosing to engage with or something that I know may benefit from me giving some attention to it, whether it's a cue for a musician who's had rests for 65 measures or something that may be problematic in terms of ensemble that I know I'll just have to be really, really clear for. In general, to answer your question, no, I'm not really reading everything at once because usually, and it, this depends entirely on what the music is, but in more traditional orchestral works, there's often not really more than four things going on at once. Usually you'll have the melody, which could be played by one instrument, a group of instruments, or you know, pairings of different instruments. You'll have the bass line, which will usually be played by the low register instruments. And then you'll have in the accompaniment, even if there are as many as six or seven different notes within a chord, within a single harmony, the accompaniment as, you know, as a rhythmic structure will usually be shared by however many instruments. I kind of consider them all to be one unit. And of course, you know, especially in a rehearsal, you do have to really listen very carefully because it is possible that there may be someone playing a wrong note or that something might be slightly out of whack. And you do have to be aware of that as the conductor. So in that sense, the, like the first rehearsal is always the most difficult, I find, because you have to be the most on your game. 
and in some in in many cases you know you're conducting a piece of music that you've never never done before and you have to be the expert on it uh in front sometimes in front of a group of musicians many of whom have played the piece before so that's always a bit of a strange dynamic that first rehearsal is the one where i really really have to be as aware of everything in the score as i can and so for that reason, I'm always much more nervous for the first rehearsal than I am for the performance. By the time we get to the performance, I don't I don't feel that I have to be reading the score so closely. I think at that point, we've rehearsed the music. We're, we're trusting in each other on stage to deliver the best we can. And at that point, I'm trying to just be more in the moment and and also to enjoy the music to a certain extent. And I think the more that I can enjoy what's going on, the more uh, I can try to communicate that energy to the musicians and also to the audience. You've done the work in the rehearsal and the performance is the time to to let it shine to the audience. I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not thinking in a performance of here's the end of the development and we're going into the recap now or, you know, this this harmony that I, you know, thought was really crunchy and tried to bring out in the rehearsal I'm aware of those things, but really all I'm thinking about in the performance is the pacing of the music. You know? there, are, uh, there are conductors who do not conduct with a score. Do you think that this is a sort of unnecessary stunt? <laughs> I do think that it's becoming less popular now. I think it's becoming... Uh, not, that, not that I think it's a stunt. I think that it can be very compelling when you have a... When you have a conductor up there on the podium who's conducting without the score and it's clear that they really do know the music so internally, I think that that can be inspiring to an ensemble. Depending on the situation, depending on the group, the conductor, the piece, the audience, everything, I think that it can be effective. However, I do also think that if you're doing it only, as you said, for a stunt, if you're doing it only to kind of bring the spotlight of the performance onto you as an individual, then I think it actually can be a detrimental contribution to the performance. I think that the conductor is becoming less and less of sort of that authoritative figure as, as they may have been in the second half of the 20th century. And I think that it is becoming a more collaborative role, which I think is great. And I think there is also something to be said for conducting with the score, because then you, you, you kind of feel that score that, as you said, has all of the musical material of the piece written out there. That text is on stage with us, and that in itself, in its completion. And there's also, you know, the perspective that the full score in itself is visually an incredibly beautiful thing and a very compelling piece of art visually. And that if I'm conducting a piece of music and I look at the score, even just glance at it for a second, that I can be inspired by just how intricately perfect it is. And, you know, I can be inspired by, by that if I need a little uh, adrenaline, adrenaline kick during a performance. You will, uh, have had the chance to conduct a like, wide variety of music, some very popular things. Uh, you know, symphonies that have a long history or even pop tunes. And you've also conducted very recent music or even brand new music. Do you approach those things differently? I mean, does the the weight of 100 years of the New World Symphony make a difference to you when you're thinking about playing that piece compared to a brand new piece? Yes and no. I, I think that I think it's very important for conductors to be part of 
the process of commissioning new works and you know expanding the orchestral canon and constantly be searching for how can we do something new and also you know let's keep this let's keep this alive let's keep the creation of new works alive and so i do really try to invest a responsible amount of time into new works as well even if it's you know something that we're just going to read once and never play again however having said that yeah if we're playing dvorak's ninth symphony I will, I, you know, I'll recognize that that is a piece that probably I'm going to conduct many times and the work that I put into it will hopefully, hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll feel the, uh, the fruits of that labor down the road as well. And is there a fairly recent orchestra piece which you would recommend to people as something they would like if they had only heard of it? Oh, that's a good question. I worked on a piece by Unsuk Chin, who... Uh, is a composer based in... Actually, you know, this isn't an orchestral piece, but I'll recommend it anyways. It's called Graffiti. Go for it. And it was commissioned by the LA Phil probably seven or eight years ago. I worked on this piece with the Contemporary Music Ensemble at McGill. I thought this piece was awesome because it had so many different styles of contemporary music all bundled up into one presentation. She's a, she's a great composer. I, as I said, she's based in Germany now, but uh, I believe she's Korean originally. Thomas Adez is, is a great composer who's, who's putting out new music uh, all the time. As we're talking, uh, we're getting very close to Beethoven's 250th birthday. And That's this true. Uh, is something which is literally being celebrated around the world for essentially two whole years. And as someone who um, made such a big contribution to the piano repertoire, to the orchestra repertoire, I mean, he undoubtedly has a place in music history. I wonder if you would explain from your view, what is his place in the music present? I mean, is there something about him which is still worth engaging in today? What, what works with Beethoven? Why is he a good composer? <laughs> That's a lot of questions. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> Why is Beethoven a good composer? It's a great question. I think this question of hundreds of years ago, why are we still playing them all the time? Why are we still going to see Hamlet? Why are we still fascinated by Da Vinci? I think to a certain extent, you know, these art forms that can be dated back hundreds of years, there is something extremely powerful about hearing a piece of music that was written 200 years ago that has been performed thousands and thousands of times has been heard by so many people and yet you can hear a live performance of it and you can be entirely alone with it in that moment and you can feel that you are experiencing a performance of a piece that will happen once and then it is over. I think live music is just an incredibly unique art form. Music in general plays such a strong role in people's lives. We use it to get through the day. We use it to self-identify who we are sometimes. And the fact that that piece that was written so long ago can exist for an ephemeral moment and that it's there and it contributes to you as the listener. So that sort of applies to everybody, but for, for Beethoven specifically, I think he was the composer who really turned the direction of music into what would happen over the next hundred years. He grabbed the listener by the shoulders and shook them and said, listen to this. And you still feel that when you listen to his music. I think that he, um, you know, Mozart 
had he had a lot of frivolous tendencies and he was such a genius that he you know he had a lot of money problems he was writing music all the time sometimes just so that he could pay his rent and so he would say okay you want a set of of six string quartets i'll write them for you by next week beethoven was different i think he really toiled away on his works and sometimes he would only write one or two pieces per year however having said that he was really in some ways the first kind of freelance composer a lot of composers before Beethoven usually would have a position at a court or at a religious institution where they were kind of on staff and they were, you know, they received their their livelihood that way. But Beethoven, not so. The aristocracy in Vienna, they recognized that he was a total boss and the future of music. And they said, we have to keep this guy here. And he had a huge amount of artistic freedom, I think, for that sense. And so his works do have a certain kind of monumental character to them you really do get this feeling of it's me against the world sometimes and then you have this feeling of uh great serenity and peace and just this this desire for as he says in the ninth symphony to the setting of friedrich schiller's text that all men will become brothers all the mentioned werden bruder and you know you can't really are you can't really argue against that message and then there's also the tragedy of the fact that he was very alienated from society, um, not only because of his deafness, which began to plague him much earlier in his life than most people think, but also from his temperament. He was a very difficult person to be around. He had a very tragic childhood and and, and experienced a lot of abuse from his father, who was an alcoholic and a, a musician in his own right. But he demanded that Ludwig practice piano all night. A lot of circumstances that that contributed to, I think, a very tragic childhood for him. For someone like him to suffer through that kind of alienation and then to experience this devastation of losing your hearing when you're writing this incredibly revelatory music. And somehow through all that, he's able to compose music that really imagines what music can be on sort of a whole new transcendent level. And then to have pretty much every piece that he writes to be very, very compelling and just so consistently innovative and so consistently Beethoven and and just gripping like that. I think for those reasons, it's impossible to deny the impact that he has had on music and that he still has on us now. Some strong words there about Beethoven's power, even today. There is so much more we could talk about, and I'm sorry to say we have to leave it there. Carl, thanks so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for having me. Carl Hertzer, Associate Conductor of the Calgary Philharmonic. A couple of quick points on my conversation with Carl Hertzer. Carl mentioned composer Thomas Addis. His album Addis Conducts Addis with the Boston Symphony Orchestra is available on most streaming platforms. He also mentioned composer Unsuk Chin. The Montreal Symphony has a wonderful recording of her violin concerto, which is also readily available. The particular work he mentioned, Graffiti, is not recorded on a major label, but I've included in the show notes a link to a fine performance available on SoundCloud. My final story today. The world is celebrating Beethoven's birthday, as I mentioned in the conversation with Carl, but when is it exactly? We do know that the local parish register mentions his baptism on December 17th, 1770. Due to high infant mortality, 
baptisms were often done within 24 hours, and it is often suggested Beethoven had therefore been born the previous day. There had been a previous child to Beethoven's parents from the previous year, and marked in the register as well, under the name Ludwig, but he died only several days old. Okay, there doesn't seem to be much problem there. But the question does come up several times during his life. For example, the announcement of Ludwig's first public performance in March 1778. Not at home, but in Cologne. Beethoven was seven years old, although several books have done the math wrong and suggested he was eight. Ludwig's father, Johann, a musician himself, wanted to market young Beethoven as a prodigy in the style of Mozart, who had wowed Europe as a young child. He put Ludwig's age as six on the poster. The ploy didn't really work. Beethoven was extremely talented, but it took him into his teens before his career really took off. So we can say that this publicity announcement was just a little PR trick. But there's more. Beethoven seems to have found mathematics difficult. He could add and subtract, but he couldn't really multiply. In later life, there are entries in his conversation books from his young nephew trying to teach him. There are also entries in his notebooks that show Ludwig, instead of multiplying something like 7 times 12, taking the 7s and adding each one of them up and up until he reached the correct result. Perhaps this was the reason that when describing his past, Beethoven seemed to be given different ideas of what year he was born. It is fair to say that in the early 1800s, knowing exactly when you were born was not particularly useful information, and it might have just slipped his mind. As Barry Cooper's Beethoven biography explains, at one point, Beethoven became convinced he was a year younger than he really was, and even went to the trouble of petitioning officials to change his age on some official documents. So when someone asks you when Beethoven was born, you can say December 16th, 1770, with a fair degree of certainty. But even Ludwig wasn't so sure. That's all for this very first episode of Culture Monster. Stay tuned for lots more interesting stories and conversations. Much gratitude to Carl Hertzer for being my first guest. I'm Jonathan Gressel. Thanks for listening.